Hey, thank you very much, and uh, welcome to the Jazz Bistro. My name is Nathan Hiltz. How you doing? Nice to see a few of you here. Uh, tonight, I am recording a, a live podcast. So um, this podcast is just interviews from, with the jazz musicians where we talk about uh, music and what we're interested in. And my guest tonight is a very wonderful piano player. This is Mark Eisenman. What do you think? Hi, folks. Pleasure to be here. How you doing? I'm good. Good. I'm nice to see you. I'm happy to be playing here at the beautiful jazz bistro on a nice big grand piano. Yeah. Nice Steinway. Yeah. How do you and like a Steinway? Is that your favorite, would you yeah, say? Yeah. Well, it's kind of the classic sound. Red Garland, all those. It's a Steinway B, which is exactly the size. That's what this is. Wow. So you kind of have no excuses when you start off at the right instrument. That's great. That's great. And do, do you get to play a, acoustic piano on all your gigs? Well, um, lately, uh, yes, because I say no to so many other ones. Oh, <laughs> nice. But, uh, but I do uh, occasionally play keyboard gigs uh, when I have the money to hire a guy to cart one around. Right. So I have a policy which strongly reinforces the idea that if you hire a piano player, you should maybe think of having a piano around. Call me crazy, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it must... I mean, I couldn't imagine taking out someone else's guitar to play. And so, I mean, you, you have to play with different pianos, different even instruments. It's crazy. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the thing is, at least if it's a real piano, you're in the same ballpark, and you get used to that, and using, uh, getting used to adjusting, because that's normal, but it's when you have to play some keyboard things that really never actually get close to what you've been practicing for like 40 years, and then it becomes a bit annoying. So you have to make a decision whether to uh, take the job or if not just make your price so high that you either make a lot of money or right. don't take the job. Have you ever considered a guitar? Like uh, no. no, no. But you know, it's funny because when I started playing, I was quite interested. I have a Fender Rhodes, and I, I, I realized at the time, and I'm talking about the mid '70s, that if I was to put my foot on that treadmill of technology, I would never stop because it changes constantly. Whereas the acoustic piano, pretty much, has been good for 150 years. With slight changes, so I don't have. Like, it made me be able to focus on the music, because there it is. This is a given. It's over. It's the piano. Now what? Well, if, if I'm never going to be as good as Art Tatum, I really don't have a lot of time anyway to start messing around with every synthesizer that comes up that's new. Yeah. So it's a big decision to go. I'm off of this one. Rhodes you know. is maybe. Yeah. Safe, like it's it's a real axe. It's got a real touch, right? Its own thing. Yeah, well, it has a grand piano action, and it's an electric instrument, not an electronic instrument. That is, it has things that hit things and pluck. So it's like the guitar in that it's uh, it has a hammers that hit things that vibrate that have pickups. So it actually feels like playing a real instrument. It's what it is, and it's not trying to be a piano. Mm. So, did you have a piano in the house uh, growing up? Oh yeah, oh yeah, a little, oh a little upright. My dad yeah. was a piano player, and oh, okay. and he taught piano. And yeah. and you're from uh, New York, right? New York, Queens. Yeah. Queens. But I lived in Toronto most of my life, and even when I was younger, back and forth about four times. 
right. from New York to Toronto. Cool. So was he a jazz piano player? Uh, you know, he was uh, from he's from uh, Ludge, Poland, and he was a Holocaust survivor. Ah. Yeah. So he, but he played everything. So he came out of the classical thing, but. When he was liberated, he toured all the DP camps and uh, USO uh, and Red Cross camps for three years in Bavaria with a group of Holocaust survivors. They had two Mercedes ambulances that they toured around. And the name of the band was the Happy Boys. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Happy. And I've been getting contacted by a filmmaker in Berlin who wants to do a documentary about these guys. Anyway, quite wow. a cool guy. That is so cool. Yeah. So um, supportive, or did he push you? or Totally supportive and discouraged me from being a professional musician. Because uh -huh. <laughs> he said, yeah. Mark, you have no idea how hard this is going to be. He says, you're picking the hard. He says, you know, it was the class. But once I decided to go, it wasn't like negative. Mm. It was like, OK. Six months at school, he said, okay, I'm going to call Eddie Graff, and I'm going to send you to him. You're going you're to play some gigs. I mean, I already been, had been doing some with him. He says, no, you need to. So I knew nothing. Wow. And he said, you can, never mind, go to the Four Seasons, Sheridan, right here, down the street. You're going to go sit in. I didn't know one tune. <laughs> I fell all over the bandstand. Right. And... Uh, he said, okay, I better start, you know, paying attention. Oh, that's the experience. That's, <laughs> that's just like uh, all my students are asking me, like, how do I get good? How do I get good? I'm like, you have to go and play and just yeah. fall flat on your face and, and suck for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And that, a funny thing, you'll dig this, is because after that night, I went out of there with the tail, my tail between my legs and walked across the street and a slightly west to George's. Bourbon Street, and it was Terry Clark, Don Thompson, and Jim Hall, Whoa. which was state-of-the-art trio music. And I went, what am I thinking? I just <laughs> fell my all over the bandstand trying to play cabaret or some stupid tune. <laughs> and these guys are playing at this level of unbelievable sophistication. I got some work to do. Mm. And it was a seminal moment that my dad did. You know, he knew that was going to happen. Right. <laughs> Wow, that's a cool. smart guy, man. That's really cool. So yeah. your first gigs were with Eddie Graff, and then uh, did you... Well, I never did gig with him, but, oh, no? but I did with his son, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> years yeah, yeah. later. I may have, but, um, but yeah, just, you know, I went to school, York University. Yeah. And uh, while I was there, Frank Falco was, Frank Falco was a mentor of mine, and he used to send me subbing in on gigs. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget he sent me on a, a gig with a guy named Ron Bagnato, who had a big band, and... It was just all of that stuff that you do, just things. And right. everything you, is like massive learning because mm. you know nothing. So it's easy to learn when you know nothing. Right. And were, were you a big practicer at home? Uh, is that something that... Well, yeah, and, but I'm pretty undisciplined. But I have to say really? that... Uh, yeah, but in the sense of like having focused practice, although if I do get up in the morning and go straight to the piano, I can be there for an hour before I think of making coffee, which, and I love my coffee. I mean, that's a, but I, I'll find something to, to work on. And so that way I'm undisciplined, but 
when I focus than I am. So has your practice been like intuitive in that way for your whole career, would you say? Yeah, and also copying. You know, like once Lauren and I lived together too, Lauren Lofsky. So he's very disciplined. Mm. So a little bit of that rubbed off on me. But, but the practicing was mostly, okay, what do I like on record? And I realized that like if you're not a virtuoso and you, you don't have a lot of schooling on the piano, you tend to, if you're smart, you put the Art Tatum and Oscar Peterson records away because they're, you know, it's just discouraging because you can't whip around the instrument like that. So I thought, well, who sounds great that doesn't sound like that? It was Red Garland, who had tons of chops, but it was so effortless and simple at times that mm. you thought you could learn how to do that. Same with Wynton Kelly. And what they had in common was massive groove. Mm. So I gravitated to groove. Cool. Yeah. And uh, like, so what kind of rhythm sections were you working with back when you were coming up? Well, like, big part of learning that is connecting with older players, right? Yeah, and I was lucky to be playing with uh, guys like when I first started getting hired. And it was all because of subbing, which is important, you know. Like, I, Gary Williamson would send me in on a Sam Noto gig, and it would be Bob McLaren on drums or uh, Jerry Fuller and Dave Young or, you know, all kinds. And even guys who were my age, but they were so much more experienced, like Steve Wallace was already, he felt like he was 10 years older to me because he knew everything. Mm. You know, when I was 25, he'd already been playing for five years down at here at the, at down at George's with guys like Vic Dickinson, Zoot Sims, Al Cohn. I mean... You know, he may as well have been 35 to me. Wow. And, and that's why the guys like him and when Neil came to town, Neil Swenson. And so I, I probably learned more about harmony from bass players than anybody else. Mm. It's just, you would think it would be pianists, but what they taught me is that if the melody and the bass line are in integral to each other and help each other, you don't need anything else. So if that's in order and you can find the middle part, okay. But you're not that necessary. As a, and that's a hard thing for a pianist to figure out. Mm, that you don't need to play big chords all the time. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, as a guitarist, it's about the voice leading, right? You finally, dawns on you, you want to go... That's all you got sometimes. That's yeah. That's five one in the key of C. I mean, it sounds great. Mm. I'm not playing a lot of stuff there. It was one handed. <laughs> well, why don't we play a tune? Yeah. Let's hear this piano. Okay. Yeah. Yesterday's. You bet. All right.
fun yeah that was really fun have we played together no the first time no first time it's I think almost that's like hilarious. we knew what we were doing yeah <laughs> yeah man your swing is amazing oh, oh it's easy playing it's with you feeling man. pulled along oh. like just no problem like it's just me rushing <laughs> yeah how can you be an intuitive player but be so clear and even and full like an intuitive player is missing pieces i always thought but it sounds oh. very studied to me you know, uh, uh, well, is I, that just it's a very complimentary. But I tell you, my models of um, those pianists I was talking about, Tommy Flanagan, Hank Jones, everything is very organized. They just have a clarity of process. And so that's what I try and do. And, and then hopefully throw caution to the wind in that moment where you feel you don't know what you're doing, but there maybe is something behind it that's that you've studied, but you don't, it's not conscious. So you, it's that game thing, that inner game of music thing. And if you can get there, that's what you have to do. I feel like some people call it risk, it's risk taking in yeah, a way, right. right? Or taking the risk to see if you can make it continually. Yes, and you're always trying something, even though you've practiced things, that you're trying something new within the framework of trying to be clear about where you are and the harmony and and then you throw your hands down and hopefully, you know, and then when you make something that you go, what, that was wrong, but then it leads you somewhere. So it's, Guido Basso once told me he loved the feeling of playing and he imagined himself in a room and there's one door that he came in and now he's painting the floor and he's painting the floor and he's painted himself into the far corner of the room and he can't get to the door, so he has to build a door to get out of the room. Wow. And that's his <laughs> concept of jazz improvisation. And that's, that's what wow, I man. feel uh, makes sense to me. That's so heavy. <laughs> that's yeah. um, so was scale work, in, you know, I always think of scale work as being important, uh, that you know, if you have a developed ear, then the scale work allows the ear to... Talk about like chord scale, scale things and yeah, is that uh, was that part of you when you were coming up, or is that something that you kept to tune up continually? Or? Well, I was, I never practiced the piano that way um, technically, but I did learn all the uh, like with John Gittins up at York, all the theory 
chord scale theory. So it was always driven by the music. I can give you a perfect example. If you're a classical pianist, you, you practice your scales, you know, in unison and in contrary motion and um, all these technical things that say the Royal Conservatory you would do. And I went, yeah, but I, I don't need to do that for the music I'm playing. Now, it happens the day you decide you want to play something like that. You need to practice that. That's what's driven my practice. So contrary motion scale is not something I heard many people do in jazz. So why practice it? John Gittin said, basically it's triaging the way you should triage your practice. It's like, what are you going to work on? You can't do everything. He said, practice what you're going to play. If you're going to swing, swing when you practice. And if you're going to play a tune, work on the song. So I used to, okay, so perfect example. It occurred to me the piano is, I always envied guitar players because they would go, like Lauren, I knew Lauren great, and you know, he'd play this, a sound like this, and then he'd move his hand up one fret, and it would be that and on the piano. It's like completely different feeling, <laughs> especially linear lines because the black white notes. I thought, man, this is a drag. Right. You go right. boo doo boo doo boo on the guitar and go up a fret. If you don't have any opening strings, it's easy to transpose. Right, right. To my piano playing eyes, right? And I thought, I want to make the piano feel like a guitar. So I, for five years, pretty much every morning, I played Cherokee in 12 keys. Improvising. Improvising. I yeah. do that now. I'll just get, I do go up in semitones. It would be my morning workout. I learned right. how to play a little bit more comfortably on god-awful keys. So you follow your ear when you're doing that to use a metronome? Yeah, always with the metronome. Always with the metronome. You know, yeah. Now I might use something like um, um, iReal Pro or something to have mm. the backing track. But mostly it would be the Franz metronome. Different tempo. I know it was my backbeat. I was just always with the metronome. Mm. Cool. And uh, so are you working on ideas, trying to work new ideas yeah. through? Or are you just trying to remain open? Yeah. Or? And also like trying to translate what, like finding the way to hear your way through the thing. Like what are the guide tones in the harmony that you need to get to? And then you d discover there are some physical things you just can't do that you shouldn't even try because they just feel right in certain keys. But then you discover other things because you're in another key. Uh, that you mm. can apply backwards, right. and uh, and the reason I use Cherokee as a as a thing was this: if you're going to play in B, and you're playing a blues in B, you're in hell most of the time. In fact, all of the time you're struggling. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're in B in Cherokee, the bridge starts off in C and gets harder. Instead, right, of, and right. if you're in B flat, the bridge starts at B and it gets easier. Mm. So you always have a mental break. That's why I use Cherokee. I tell my students, you want to do this, you always have somewhere you, where you sound okay. Because mm. it's in bad and good keys, no matter what key you play it in. And, and do you have different language in different keys, would you say? Yeah. Like on guitar, like we don't really have 12 keys. We have maybe five keys right. in a way because of the way the it's positioned, strings. you know, in the open strings. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if like maybe in B you have certain things that yeah. can get you by. Yeah, like, okay, like here's a perfect example. Here's, there's an F chord, so, you know, I got my. So here's, 
That's a black white thing. So it's it's slide yeah. down. Now if you hear it this way, you know you're in G. If you hear a piano player go, you know he's in F. If you hear him go, you know he's in G. Wow. Because the black white's just like you can't do that in E. Right. Yeah. yeah. Guitars like that too. There's yeah. certain things that just yeah. work in certain keys. It's kind of uh, it kind of sucks in a way. I I, I want to yeah. be a robot. I want to be yeah. able to do anything anytime. No. But the more I look at different great guitar players, I I hear them doing the same thing in the same place sure. over and over. It's just like you know what? That's just how the instrument it's works. That's yeah, just, yeah. It, you you finally start to come to grips with this this issue that you know what? It's not the worst thing in the world. It's like I I always wondered why. Um, like one of the most friendly keys for me is E flat. I don't know what it is, but I know that Bud Powell and he he write rhythm tunes. They were in E flat, mm. you know. And you're going because yeah. there's something about the register where you can grab the voicings, the tense, and also the black white thing as it lays under your hand because you got three blacks. It's just very tactile, and these mm. issues they're there. They're they're real. Mm. So. Uh, your practice is guided by your needs, like your gigs and what work you have coming up. And yeah. uh, so, uh, do you see your students having that same opportunity uh, nowadays? Well, no, it's really, it's really weird because it's teaching is so. Um, it's like teaching in a bit of a vacuum because the students don't. Well, they have other opportunities, which if they're really go-getters and if they're ambitious, they end up doing music in a way that I would never conceive of so it's going to inform their jazz playing so i encourage them to do whatever they can do to get out and play anything but the kind of experiences that we had or um, have, that is not happening so they have to make that happen and school for me is as a teacher is trying to do that artificially or virtually or whatever word you want to use to create an environment that, okay, this is what could happen on a gig, mm. you know. But it's not the same. No. <laughs> it can't be done. You, could, you, can, yeah. you can try, but it can't be. Yeah, there's no mean people at school anymore. Well, except for me. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> no. <I'm laughs> I, hear, I just hear stories about teachers from years past getting mad and throwing a garbage can. No, 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 no. That kind of thing. And physical, like. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I'm not afraid to uh, say, well, you know, I, I mean, we're all struggling with this music. Mm. Like, me too. And I often will sit down and play something that I can't do with these kids. I, you know, join the club, guys, but come on. I'll show you how. I'll, so I'll, I, I'll, I'll sit down, I'll play something, and I'll say, okay, this is the problem. And then I'll say, this is how I'm going to try and practice to fix it. Whatever it is, a concept. Um, yeah, so it's fun mm. trying to teach. Do you find it difficult, like... Uh, I think of like uh, the the progression of a classical pianist. There's like a, there's a pretty straight path towards virtuosity yeah. or mastery, you know, and it, you encounter problems along the way through the repertoire. But jazz yeah. is so much more organic. Like, how do you guide a student? Yeah. Through there, is there a piano player you start them with, or you, do you give them like okay, check out Red Garland, yeah, lift I, a bunch of his solos, and then yeah, I kind of uh, I had this idea. Look, you can only teach what you know and your point of reference because otherwise you're just faking it. So I knew what, I just tell people what I thought was interesting to me. 
Now, what was interesting to me um, was it seemed to me that the center of the music, and now I'm talking about 1974, so a lot of people that I'm talking about the center, they weren't on the scene. They were already old. So to, to me, Miles Davis was this middle of, of jazz music because if you start with Miles, mid-50s, and go up to the 60s, you get the hippest ever music, ever. And it has not been surpassed, I don't care by who. Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter. And then, if you think about Wayne Shorter, you go, well, that takes you to Weather Report. So now you're into fusion land. So you start with Miles, you go forward in time, and you've got what came after. You go backwards, he was playing with uh, Bird. Okay, right. so now there you are in bebop land. So it's a good center point right. to start. My, for me, that's the way I taught jazz history. Mm. I didn't start chronologically with you know the New Orleans, Mississippi, upcoming, all this. No, I started Miles and said, let's go back. Bird, Lester, Young, blah, 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 and forward at the same time. Right, that's an interesting way to do it. That's brilliant. Well, yeah. it just seemed to me that that's the way I came to it. Mm. I've been working farther, more like for years backwards, more than I did when I started. Mm. To, and I didn't know Teddy Wilson or anybody like. Not that I can do that, but just the awareness of where did that, where did Oscar Peterson come? Nat King Cole, you know, was like mm. big influence on Oscar. You go, what? Mm. Uh, you know, I knew Nat King Cole from his TV show. Right, right. I had no idea he was this monster jazz pianist. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, cool. So, like, so what are you trying to do with your records? Like, um, do you trying to go for a certain style, or uh, are, are, do you do a lot of writing? Well, yeah. I, um, it's funny because I've never, I've never thought of myself as a writer, except I like writing contrafacts. Which the word contrafact is a kind of stupid word. It basically means taking um, a given set of harmony um, and playing. Uh, writing a new melody, which is essentially what you're doing when you're improvising anyway. Mm. So my whole, my, a lot of my repertoire in my book with Pat LaBarbera and John McLeod and um, Steve and various drummers is, is the tunes are written based on standards, mostly because we hate, we don't want to rehearse. So <laughs> if I just write this stuff that they can read, then when they play and they're soloing, we just close our eyes and we don't have to worry about these crazy chord mm. changes. Everybody's happy. So if I write um, a tune like this, I'll just take a minute. Yeah, play.
which is Lullaby of the Leaves. Lullaby. My song is called, yeah, yeah. which is stolen from Lullaby of the Leaves. My song is called So Sue Me. <laughs> nice. Nice. Because, you know, and this is a common practice. If you took uh, this tune, you're going to do what is this thing called love? Well, this. Tad Dameron's Hothouse. So it's like fine tradition of stealing. The beboppers were the greatest at it. So I kind of do that when I write. Right. Once in a while, I actually write something original. But cool. Well, why don't we play something else? Sure. Let's do it, yeah. Right. You want to do uh, uh, What Is This Thing Called Love? Is that... Uh, what about or, uh, uh, something slower? You want sure. to do Shining Stockings? Sure. Love to.
too much fun. Very nice, very nice. That's cool. All right, so you've seen a lot of change in Toronto since you've been here, right? <laughs> well, I've been around long enough, I guess, so yeah. yeah that yeah. happens, you know, when you've been around. Your career's right? been, how long? Were you, like about 30 years in the yeah, city, would you say? About? I've been here, okay, so I'd, I'd say I was at school till about 1980, and I was playing even while I was at school. Because I went to York part-time for four years because I wanted to play. So I, I was doing the best of both worlds, getting the real-world experience and working gigs. So I'd say 78. Mm. So we're talking 40 years I've been... Wow, it must have been like all farms up there at that time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, farms, absolutely. North of Steeles, absolutely farms. Nothing but farms. Beautiful. But, but yeah, the, the, and the gigs were... There were a lot of great... There were always three jazz clubs in Toronto. A very like all the time, like one closed, another would open. And the thing that was really great was that you had week long gigs. If you had a gig, and, and I'm talking airport gigs, gigs where you were playing dance things and whatever, but mostly even the jazz gigs, you know, you get hired for six nights with a guy like Sam Noto or whatever, Kirk McDonald, and 
you would have redemption built into the game. Right. <laughs> you'd screw up, you, you know, and then the next thing you had another chance. It's kind of like baseball. Wow. Like six days with someone like Sam Noto, or I also yeah. saw on your resume uh, Woody Shaw. Some you know what? That's a mistake. I got to get that off of there. Oh, pardon me. No, I never played. That's what not about your Nat? fault. What about Nat Adderley? Nat Adderley, one night. I played, I subbed in for Bernie. One, for Bernie? One for one night, and, or was it for the whole week? No, it was just one night. Wow. But he was so hip. Because I was this, you know, I'm a kid, right? This is a smart leader. Okay, this is a great story. So I come in, I meet Nat. He's very cool guy, nice guy. And he says, he can tell that I'm very nervous. He says, why don't you go up? It was maybe Dave Young, probably Jerry Fuller. He says, why don't you go up, play a couple of tunes. And, uh, you know, I'll come up some, somewhere in there. So I, now I'm calling tunes, right? So I'm obviously going to call things I know and like. So I'm feeling pretty good, you know. It could happen to you, and swinging along. And next thing I know, he's playing with us. So first of all, he sussed us out, sussed me out. He went, "Okay, I see what I'm dealing with here." And uh, then he would call tunes, and I, mo I knew most of them as I recall. But I remember he stumped me on something, and I went up on the first break, and I said, "Yeah, sorry about that. Whatever it was that I didn't know." He says, "Oh man, that's okay. You know." Playing with my brother, we play the same damn tunes all the time. I never learned any tunes. Wow. wow. So this is Nat Adderley, like, putting me at ease. Oh, yeah, we're all in this together, man. I know what it's like. Mm. He's an old black jazz musician to me at the time, near yeah. the end of his yeah. career. And I'm going, man, this is smart. I remember that because if you're a leader, that's the way you want to be with mm. people. Do you get to play with younger musicians very much? Uh, yeah, it's uh, not as often as I'd like because it's like anything you you gravitate. One of the, uh, I'll put it this way. When when I was starting, there was so much work or so much more work anyway that guys had to sub out. So you would find yourself the youngest guy on the bandstand because that's what happened. But now, like it's so easy to gravitate towards the great players you know because you can always get them, which mm. is terrible for the scene yeah. because these intergenerational um, meetings don't happen. Like they could, it takes effort for me to say, well, I don't need to call Steve Wallace, Neil Swenson, Pat Collins, Mike Downs, all these great bass players and go to some guy that has also been playing for 15 years and it sounds great, who I don't know, mm. because it's too easy to get the guys that are first in your mind. In the meantime, you're missing out on playing with a younger guy who's got another yeah. kind of energy. I think about that a lot, like thinking about how can I make that happen a little bit. I've been actually going back to the Rex Jam a little bit to try oh. to like encounter younger players, because I mean, I, I meet the guys at school, but yeah. there's a lot more out there. You yeah. Know? yeah. I mean, that's the good thing about teaching, is you're always around young people, so... and But it would be... It would be nice if, um, if that scene was more that way. And, and I, got, I guess the way to do it is to do it yourself. You know, mm. Put a band together with different people and force yeah. the issue. Yeah. Like it's Art your Blake. turn. It's our turn. Yeah, it's really. our turn. Yeah. To, yeah. So yeah. get the gigs and, uh, yeah. That's cool. So, yeah, those six-night-a-week things must have been so 
Cool. Yeah. I mean, that, I think of that and it must have been an education in itself, just that one week coming through that must have formed oh, yeah. so hard. I mean, I played a week with at the Bermuda Onion with Art Farmer, which was like one of the scariest, best gigs ever. Like it was, I learned so much and he, and most of the art I learned from these guys wasn't so much the music, it was the music is the playing, but it's not like I could pin my, but their attitude, what it, their spirit of, and all the great players like that, they have one thing that's the same, and it's the absolute concern that the music drives everything. They don't care about whether you're white or black or young or old. It's can you play and can we get together? That's it. It stops and ends right there. And that's what Art Farmer was like that and Nat Adderley, that one night, Bar Barney Kessel, I worked a week with Barney Kessel. Oh, uh, you know, I was like, that's just, a, you're just another guy who has to, we're gonna play together. Right. Great. And so because you idolize these people mm. and they don't want you to do that. They want to just get down to the music. The hang must have been interesting too to see how people kind of live, or you know. Yeah, we didn't get to do that much hang. Although with Sam, I got a fair bit of serious hanging and all kinds of fun. And um, and he, of all the guys, I think I learned the most from Sam Noto, uh, especially the spirit and his intensity musically and on the bandstand. Like he would get livid. While the trio's playing, he's sitting there having a drink, and if somebody was talking, and he's, he'd be, his eyes closed, focused on the bandstand, listening to what we were doing. So, and this is a guy who's like seriously over up here, you know, in Miami, like way up there, a jazz legend, and he's bugged if somebody distracts him from what we're doing. That's an attitude of intensity that uh, he had, and that means that you want to have that. Yeah, yeah. I, I took my dad out for dinner at uh, the top of the Senator to mm -hmm. see Rob McConnell. Oh, and yeah. there was some, uh, some of those oh. guys smoking cigars uh, that used to smoke cigars talking, and he put his mouth right into the microphone, just like this, you know, yeah. and yelled as loud as he could, oh, yeah. shut the F yeah. up, you yeah. know. And uh, I remember my dad just being like, whoa, you know, he had never experienced that yeah. before, but... Uh, Serious. Serious. Yeah. And I remember another, this is a great story too. I was like coming to see Johnny Griffin at George's. This was great because it kind of formed my attitude about pianos. Okay, so you got Ronnie Matthews on piano. So it's J Johnny Griffin's band. Okay, and so it's not a local rhythm section. He's got Ronnie Matthews and Johnny Griffin, the gentle giant, the monster tenor player. And I don't even know what Johnny Griffin looked like at that point. I just know that me and my buddy are at the bar having our Pepsis. <laughs> cool. And the waiters hate us. And these guys come in before, we were there early and they, uh, they come in and this guy goes to uh, the piano and he goes like this, I'll just do it. He stands up and he goes, closes the lid, goes to the bar, goes, uh, piano's out of tune, get a tuner. And I'm going, wow. Wow. And then, and then he says, it says in the contract to have an in-tune piano. Okay. 
Well, they try calling. No, it's not going to happen. It's Canada Day weekend. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> they, they go, fine. All the tuners are busy. Oh, okay. Yeah, all the tuners are busy. And I witnessed, first of all, the band goes, okay, that's fine. When you have the piano tunes, we'll be back. And they left. And I think Pat LaBarbera's band subbed in, uh, did the gig that Really? Night. So they just, they're yeah. in town for the gig, they just don't do it? No. It says wow. in the contract, and it's not a do it. And the killer thing about this, who was the guy who went to the piano? Not Ronnie Matthews, the piano player was Johnny Griffin. Wow. He's the leader. He, he went, I'm not even putting my piano player anywhere near this thing. Mm. And I went, oh my God. So this is like a nothing in a jazz gig in Toronto. And this guy's not going to stand for it, man. I went, man, that's, that's an attitude. Wow. We want to play our music. You guys didn't do your part of the deal. Sorry, we're out of here. You're going to pay us anyway. We'll be back. It, it's so, you know, as a, I, I work as a sideman a lot. It's, it's so hard to say no. I, yeah. I no, say yes to almost anything, you know, wedding planner, you know. Yeah, of can course. Can you guys do another half hour? Oh, can yeah. You, can you play, you know, or yeah, you're yeah. not going to start yet or, you know, millions of things like that. Yeah, yeah. But I've learned to, like, to work a lot, you kind of have to yeah. be a yes guy. That's right, of course. You know? Yeah. Ha- and have you always, have you, have you, do you balance that or do you? Yeah, you, you have, have to pick your spots. Yeah. I mean, I could, I, I could never do that. I'm so happy these days if there's a piano at all. Uh, like, that, you know, I mean, we all know what it should be. So, but there is, I think everybody finds their own level of comfort with a surgeon themselves. But it definitely, I think, also what happens at a certain age, you get tired of that game. So you make it such that you find yourself losing work on purpose um, because people get to know. Like, the word's out. Don't bother this guy because he's just going to give you grief about it. And that's cool. Because then when you do work, it's right. So you start paring down things, and you have to know where you're at in your own mind, whether you're ready to lose work. Mm. Uh, I used to think of it like this. If, like at some, okay, if you were, like, back when the, the, the pilot paid $75 instead of the princely sum these days. Right, that whatever, changed. Changed a little better, right? Yeah, yeah, I've heard. I haven't been there in yeah. ages. But anyway, the point is, what I, I, I told my students, I said, guys, one day you're going to be the guy who wants to have $175 gigs. You are that guy now. You'd be thrilled to have $7,500 coming in 100 jobs. Mm. But one day you're going to be the guy who wants 75 gigs at $100 a piece because maybe those other 25 days you want to see a ball game or you want to work a better gig. And one day that dime's going to fall over and you're going to be the guy who goes, you know what? Mm. That's not enough. And it's like this weird happens. It mm. just happens. Or it doesn't happen. Right. And uh, hopefully it happens. So, so at this point, what's, what's your best week? What kind of week? What do you, how do you like your week to go? <laughs> What's you a mean good, what, how many games, what do you need oh. to be fulfilled as a player? Like, I got to uh, play a certain amount. Yeah, I play a lot week, at you home. Know? <laughs> I need um, like at least one gig where I can do whatever I want. Yeah, one I'd, or two. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'd like I'd, ideal would be. I used to think it would be the six night thing again, but now I'm thinking three would be great because the Montreal Bistro used to have. 
they had pared down from five to four, and then they were doing three night gigs, and that was kind of nice. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I mean, if I get a gig a week, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'd like more. Mm. But, but also, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, um, I don't want to go out and not make any money, and I, and, and I want to play a real piano. And I'm, so it's these things that impact. Because I got a beautiful grand piano at home, and I can get a lot of satisfaction. I want to play with people. Mm. So that makes me want to go out. Yeah. But I, I don't want to be frustrated by the scene. And I don't want to have an attitude on the bandstand that's negative. Right. So if I'm being paid shit money, well, I do have an attitude that's negative, so I don't go. Right. So you're just being true to yourself in the best possible way. Yeah. You're like, yeah. So it's everyone, every situation is individual and has to be assessed mm. for that. Are you optimistic about the future? Do you see yeah. a way that it can get better? I mean, this is a nice piano here at the Jazz yeah. Bistro. I'm excited about this club. I, yeah. I, I don't know that there's anything that's... I don't know. I can't see it getting much sillier than it is now. Yeah. But I think that the music is always going to be there. I think there's always going to be a level of people who are patrons. Uh, I think that it's just harder, and it's not as usual to have a scene that, that used to be. But... But there are other things, like I always think of my students as they have other opportunities that they will enjoy that I wouldn't. Like they're playing keyboards and stuff and they like it, you know, mm -hmm. so that's fine. Like it's, it, it doesn't have to be the way it was for me to be good for right. people. Right, You know, it's just, you know, so I can't define the future in terms of my past right, as right. being good or bad. It's just the way it's going to be. You know? hmm. So, um, you know, I, I love the hang. I love uh, the clubs and hearing music and that whole scene of playing. And, but uh, now it seems like so much of our culture is being played out on Facebook. Like the way we communicate to one another about who we are as a player and as a person kind of happens there. It doesn't really happen at the Rex or here at the Jazz Bistro. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, like uh, Facebook is a, as our sort of medium. It's a weird thing. It's a virtual thing, which means Super it's weird. not real. And, and it's weird because I use Facebook a lot, but it's starting to, uh, I'm starting to feel exactly what you're saying um, because it doesn't really feel that you're meeting people. Like, really. It's not the same as being in a room, talking to people at a bar, hanging out and doing what we're doing here. Um, yeah, having to put up with them for like a couple yeah, hours yeah. Or, or whatever, get get there. You yeah, don't, you can really right. get somewhere with someone. Yeah, like. and that's really what you need to do. I mean, there's no no there's no none of that social media could ever be like that. And it's it's important. Uh, and the other thing is that everything's rosy on on social media. Nobody lets in. You know, this thing happened to to me today, and describes it and says, "I'm so pissed about it." It's like um, it's more like my namaste. I'm okay with that's it. That's right. Yeah. Not my life is perfect. Yeah, everybody's life is perfect on social media. It seems. Mm. Do you think there's good things about it? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, I guess there's access to uh, oh, yeah. more music than we ever had. I mean, I had to go out and buy CDs that I couldn't afford. <laughs> like yeah, no, it's great. And the other thing is that you meet people. You could communicate with people all over the world. And um, there's this Facebook thing called Jam of the Week. I love this because you get to see there are like 60,000 people subscribe to that. They're all jazz people. And every week they have a little challenge or some kind of thing. And you get to see all these people 
playing, mm. you go, wow, this is really something, you know. So that's really far out because you never know about them. So it may, the social media or the internet allows people to find people of the, even the most narrow niche of type of interest and find other people like that. Mm. Like people who think that, uh, you know, seashells are the best thing on the planet. I don't know, whatever, some obscure interest mm. they have. We'll find each other. Well, that, well, that's a good thing, I think, because, uh, you know, once you get out of the city, the jazz clubs, I mean, we have a few here, but they get less and less yeah. and less, you know, so f to be able to c be connected to the subculture of jazz through the internet must be helpful to people that live in wherever, you know. Well, like, okay, a good example of this, connectivity. Um, I, w I had a book, uh, me and Sue, my wife, went to London in May, and I knew I was going, and it was just a vacation, no reason to go other than to go. And I remembered that I had uh, an acquaintance from 25 years ago named Sean Hargraves, who t is a piano player. He came and t I thought he took lessons with me. I couldn't even remember it was so long ago, but yes, I did teach him. He was here to study with Oscar Peterson, who had a stroke that year. Mm. Anyway, stick around. So I put the word out. I found him on the internet, and we connected, and he got me a gig at Ronnie Scott's. So wow. That was cool. You That's know? cool. And then yeah. I got to hear him play. Which mm. was great because here's this old student of mine. He's he was on Eurovision. He, it's wow! Like, like th that's what he does. He's a professional pianist, and I felt this is good because I wouldn't have known what Sean's up to if it wasn't for the internet. That he's got a family and he's raising a kid, and his wife are happy, mm. and he's playing the piano and a studio for a living. It's great. Mm. That's great. Well, um, why don't you let us know uh, what's coming up for you? Do you have any gigs coming up that you want to let I, people know I about? I, I think I've got something here uh, with uh, Mike Murley. I don't remember what month that is. It's, thanks. So last week of September. That's good. Okay. And um, maybe something at the Rex after that with my quintet with Pat LaBarbera. And I've got some gigs here and there at the Homesmith coming up and with Don Vickery and Neil. Just You can always go to my... Um, jazzpiano.ca uh, website. That's He's your website? You are jazzpiano.ca? Yes, I am. Wow. I, I was an early adopter. You were, yeah. That's great. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, thank you very much. Let's play one more yep. tune, and then uh, we'll take a little break. And uh, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Body Electric Podcast. Uh, Mark Eisenman, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks, Sybil, for letting us do this here. And uh, what do you want to play? I don't know. You pick. Okay. All right, we're going to do uh, the great uh, tune by Bill Evans. This is called Waltz for Debbie. Thank you. 